Hello, I'm Dave Brisky. I'd like to welcome you to the fourth episode of Brisky Business. Thanks again for making me a part of your day. The goal of the platform is to offer you strategies to help accelerate your business. And it's a forum where we offer tips and tidbits uh, that are shared to help you demystify the business process and uh, the business process as well as the stock uh, market, which is uh, confusing for many. Uh, it's a place where mentorship is not only discussed, it's encouraged. And we invite questions. At, at the end of the day, this is your program and we wanna discuss what you're interested in having conversation about. So always write me if you have any topics you'd like to discuss or any clarifying points at briskybusiness at ntvusa.com. During the last broadcast, we took a deep dive into the selling process. Uh, we, we, we took nuggets uh, out of uh, the balance sheet and helped explain how the balance sheet could help you evaluate different business opportunities and the strength of different companies. And we also spent some time on gap moments. And frankly, I got a ton of feedback from all of you about gap moments. So I'm glad you enjoyed that part of the program. Go back to episode three on the NTV USA app and take a look or take a listen. All the episodes of Brisky Business live there. Brisky Business is broken down into four different segments. It's Brisk Business Basics, Brisk's Buyer Bail, Brisk's Bulls and Bears, and Brisk's Best and Brightest, which is all about mentorship. I'm really excited about today's program. The reason why I'm excited is it's the first program that I'm going to bring a guest on, and that's gonna be a regular part of Brisky Business. And this guest, he's a man that'll probably be no stranger to many of you watching. Uh, he's very, very successful in a 23-year career and the founder of Longevity International. He is the CEO and chairman of the board there, and the cool thing about Mr. Steve Wallach's experience is that Steve Wallach founded the company some 23 years ago. And I think having a guest like that is gonna be helpful for all of you as you start different business ventures. And we can learn a lot from Steve's experience during that 23 years. So let's bring Steve Wallach on to Brisky Business. Hey, Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations on the show. I've told you before, but I'll say it publicly. I love uh, the name and I, I love all your experience. And I love your heart for sharing. So thank you for uh, allowing me to be part of it. Well, I was saying to the listening audience, it's the first guest I've ever had. So you're in an esteemed position. You're our first guest. And I can't think of a better first guest to have. So Steve, take a big, deep breath, grab a cup of your favorite coffee and let's get started. Absolutely. I've got my I've got my favorite coffee with me and you know what that is. I'm going to so guess that's Young the Change Coffee is is dear to my heart. I understand. Longevity be the change coffee. So, listen, the first segment Steve is Brisk Business Basics. Last uh, segment we spent a fair amount of time in the earlier segment on the business plan. And then we dove deep into the sales process. Our li listenership had a, a keen interest in that. I thought what a perfect time to bring you onto the program uh, to talk about your early career. So forget about your 23 years of experience. I want you to go back in time with me, back 23 years ago, before you had all this incredible experience of 23 years. And then I'm gonna ask you some questions about how you jumped into that with, in that mindset, okay? Remember, 50% of startup businesses fail within four years and 95% fail in 10 years. And here's Longevity International, 23 years 
uh, and the running. So let's talk about that. You're all excited. Tell me, walk me through the process on how you got started in your first business venture. Sure. Gosh, that goes back longer than than 23 or 24 years. You know, growing up um, around my my father in particular and my grandparents and then other mentors along the way, I I knew for sure that I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to be self-employed. I wanted to be a business owner. It was just natural to me in the people around me. And so I started writing my first business plans really on a piece of paper, yellow pad of paper or notebook paper, you know, in my teens. Wow, that's that's amazing. Not a lot of people actually start writing it down. It was a tip I kind of gave in the first one. If you can't write it down, it can't be done. So you're pretty fortunate that you started off with that. Tell me, let's go off before we get into the biggest rewards. What were some of those maybe misconceptions you had going in or some of those early big mistakes you might have made as a new entrepreneur? You know, I, I think one of the things that I've, I've heard you tell others as well, but I think one of the common misconceptions, and mine probably as well, is that being an entrepreneur and working for yourself or working for a business you've, you've started is that it is 24-7. It is not a job in that, um, you know, it's 9 to 5 or 8 to 5 or whatever. You know, it is 24-7. There are things happening around the clock, especially in today's world. So I think that's a very common misconception. Yeah, I think you're right. I hear people all the time say they want to get into their own business because they want to work for themselves and make their own hours. And for me, that means, well, that's simple. That's going to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, How did you incorporate some of those misconceptions or maybe early mistakes into your early business career? Well, you know, I think that, uh, um, and you know this well, Dave, you know, when you start a business, especially in the very, very beginning, it's very common to start with your family and friends. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that's how you incorporate your life and your lifestyle and your family and friends into your business. So it, it definitely allows you uh, and a person to, to work around the clock more easily. And I don't remember who, who the quote is from, but you know, if you find something you love, you won't work a day in your life. And, and I, I've grown to, to really believe that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a quote that I say often. And uh, it was one that I said to my children, find something you love to do and figure out how to make money doing it and you won't work a day in your life. And it is an absolute fact. Um, Incorporating uh, um, the evolution of a business. Tell me about that. I've seen business plans that are super rigid. How important do you think it is to have flexibility baked into your business plan? And did you have it in yours? In my early business plans, especially, I had a lot of flexibility baked into them because I didn't formally know how to create a, a business plan. I just kind of knew what I knew through experience. But, uh, you know, any battle plan in Muhammad Ali, I think, is famous for saying that, uh, uh, you know, his plan going into a fight goes out the door or out the window at the first punch. And I think a business plan kind of has to be like that also. It's great to have it. It mapped out, and I've heard you say it a million times. If you can't write it down, you can't do it. But you have to have the the flexibility. I also heard you talk about, I think, in your inaugural show, that you have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to be fast on your feet. And somebody that I've grown up uh, kind of studying is Richard Branson of Virgin Enterprises. And one of his philosophies is no matter how big you get, be able to remain small and, and be able to pivot quickly. 
Wow, that's uh, that's a really. I'm going to steal that as a uh, as a bite. Actually, when we do Brisk's bit, you know, I actually have a Brisk's bit right now, Steve. It's in. Uh, it's this. If your business plan is set in concrete, you will sink. It must be flexible to allow for pivots, and you brought up pivots just now. Being able to pivot is essential. You know, we talk a lot of folks that enter into the direct selling business, and obviously you know a fair about direct selling and the direct selling channel, and they don't experience success early. Why do you think that is? Well, I think why people don't experience uh, success early in any business, whether it's direct selling or a traditional brick and mortar retail business or a new online business, is one, they're learning. Uh, two, they're getting their name and their product and their service out there, and it takes time. And it takes time to learn how to, to get it out far and wide and reach a wider audience and for people to also learn to, to, to uh, value your product and service and, and you as a, an individual. So all that takes time. And so when you're starting out, uh, oftentimes new entrepreneurs don't have that base of contacts and awareness to leverage. So it's, it's natural that, you know, things aren't overnight successes. We hear about overnight successes that are 10 and 20 years old all the time. <laughs> That's true. You know, I've heard you say before, one of the reasons you felt there was some challenges in terms of the success ratio is, you know, when you got into business, I'm sure you put everything you had into it. You know, we talk about people mortgaging their homes. They have they take every one of their last dollars and there's an ease of entry into the direct selling channel. And uh, you talked about commitment on another program I saw you talk about. So do you think that level of commitment may be the reason why we don't see um, that, that not everyone's succeeding at it. Definitely that's a factor in network marketing, direct sales and the direct sales profession is people aren't sure what they're getting into sometimes and their level of commitment isn't, isn't going to be the same as somebody that is spending or investing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to start a business direct selling, that's one of the things I love about it, is that you don't have to go rent a, a, a traditional space. You don't need a, a phone book ad or, or an online ad or online advertising to be successful in direct sales these days. And, you know, so you can start for very, very little in terms of an investment. In fact, the biggest investment for most people in direct sales is their time and their, 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 their reputation. But when it comes to a traditional business, it's a much larger investment, which also leads to a much larger commitment for most people. Yeah, so you don't have maybe as much to lose. But I always look at time value as so critical, right, at the end of the day. So those that get in, uh, you know, let's um, I've got another couple of questions and we've got only another minute. So in one minute, let's talk about, you know, you've got direct selling, Steve, 23 years. Uh, what nugget can you offer to a new distributor considering a side hustle or a 100% career pivot to direct selling? Be passionate about what you're involved in. Be, be passionate about what the product or service is or the business opportunity. Be passionate about something. Passionate is, or passion is the, the ingredient. Secret ingredient. In this segment of the program, we talk about brisks, buy or bail. And in this segment, we talk about the process of making decisions in business, which frankly is an everyday process. I'm fortunate on the program today, and we're going to have him here through the entire hour. Steve Wallach, CEO, Chairman of Longevity International, traded on the NASDAQ YGYI. And uh, we've been, uh, we're going to bring Steve back on. 
uh, to talk about uh, some of his experiences in business decisions, which are done every single day. Steve and I have a really nice history together. We, we merged together our businesses back in 2011, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in the public company section. And uh, from there, we were about a $20 million enterprise, and we're proud to say we're north of $160 million just, uh, I guess, eight years later, so seven years later, actually, when we eclipsed that mark. So we're pretty proud of that. Uh, Steve, every single day, rapid decisions are made, all types of ways we have to make decisions. And I call it buyer bail, and you know what I'm talking about. We assess all this information, and are we going to go with our decision, or are we going to maybe not go with it? And uh, there's many, many areas that this process comes in. And what, one I really want to start with, because I know it's one of your passions, and Longevity has such an incredible array of products, is tell me, uh, tell the listeners how you go about making a decision on a new product. What goes into that decision? And then when do you make the decision to go buy, continue, or bail on it? You know, there's a lot that goes into creating products and deciding whether you're going to introduce them into the, to the market. Sometimes we create products and we don't introduce them to the market. Sometimes we create products and we introduce them to the market on a timeline that, that follows through everything that we had planned. And other times it's, it's at a different time. So it, it just really depends. But the decision-making process goes into evaluating and reevaluating all the time. And so it's based on market. Uh, it's based on market influence and, and what's going on in the marketplace. It, it's based on our consumer base, our distributor base, uh, our competition. All of those things go into the, the final decision whether to, to actually introduce a product and then it also goes into, can you produce the product? Can your manufacturers get it done to your satisfaction, to, to your original goals and plans? And then cost is, is an evaluation once it's done in terms of planning and development. Tell me about the economics of it. Have you ever fallen in love with a product, but just the economics uh, wouldn't allow you to introduce it? Often. That happens often. Sure, absolutely. Um, and usually those products or projects are things that I revisit and revisit and revisit and look for another way to get it done. You know, if, if I'm passionate about something and the marketplace uh, continues to have a need or an interest in it, then I'll continue to, to work on it. Yeah, it'd be nice if we didn't have to worry about price and margins, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a big part of it, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you have to. If you're a for-profit company, uh, even though you may fall in love with the product and what it can do, if you can't get the consumer to pay uh, or realize the value, it kind of flops, and, it, and that can be really, really difficult. I know, and I've seen you struggle through some decisions in our business on products you really wanted to bring to market, but it just wasn't going to work for uh, for the model. Uh, Acquisitions is another thing. I mean, the Longevity uh, deploys a pretty significant acquisition model, I know, and, and uh, I know it's over 30 different businesses, even since I've been involved in the company. Uh, I imagine that this kind of buyer-bail process um, is a pretty big factor in acquisitions. Talk about that a little bit and what goes into it in your mind. Sure. Acquisitions are like buying a business. They're, they're like evaluating any other business and making those decisions. I, I know that you and I together have evaluated probably 75, 100, maybe even more businesses in that process of deciding whether or not to continue going down the, the road towards an acquisition or or a, a, a joint venture or whatever, whatever the decision and whatever the thought process is. And so we evaluate all of those. 
and many uh, we probably turn away more and turn down more than we we complete. Uh, yeah, obviously, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it, um, you know, who knows? It could be uh, one in ten work out, right? So uh, it, it's I guess when you're uh, being evaluated at how uh, how you're doing in a business, uh, it's what's happening that people can't see. I think that uh, is maybe most surprising. Absolutely. You know, it's culture, it's, it's products, it's uh, people, it's, it's terms of the deal, it's all of those things. And, and just because you decide or just because the decision is jointly made not to move forward on, on a decision, whether it's a product, whether it's a joint venture, whether it's an investment, whether it's uh, an acquisition, it doesn't mean that it won't happen down the road. It's one thing that uh, one of my mentors taught me a long time ago. Don't always be in such a hurry to get something done. You know, take your time. There'll be other opportunities, and oftentimes there are. So if it makes sense, you move forward. But if it doesn't make sense, it just means it doesn't make sense now. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's talk about, I'm going to shift a little bit uh, into another process. Staying with Bruce Buyer Bail, and I, uh, I built a pretty big international business prior to uh, my, my, our involvement together. And uh, Longevity is, uh, has uh, expanded internationally, and that's a whole different mindset. So give me an idea about the process you might use when you open an international market, which may be a little bit different than a domestic market. A lot more goes into opening a market than a single product evaluation or even an acquisition type evaluation because there's so much more in terms of considerations. It's a much larger investment and the timeline is much longer to, to have things get done. There are a lot of things out of any one person's control. And so international, definitely there's a lot more that uh, goes into opening an international market for sure. How important do you think it is to uh, find nationals or you know, local people uh, when you're talking about expanding internationally? I think it's critical to have people that are in alignment with your goals and vision locally because, as we talked about earlier in this program, in your show, um, it, it, to, to be in business, you have to be able to and be willing to work 24-7. And when it comes to international markets, you need some people on the ground in that market to be able to interact and make decisions that are in alignment with your goals and, and visions as a business much faster than maybe you're able to from a, a, around the world. You know, in my early career, I, uh, you know, <laughs> I talk about it often, right? You know, oh, wh where do you get this business wisdom from? And I say, you know, I fail a lot. You know, so, uh, you know, when you fail, you learn. And, you know, if, or at least if you're, if you're going to be around, you're going to learn from those failures. And in my early career, I, uh, I entered international markets. And, boy, I was going to do it the American way. And, and we, were en we entered Europe. This was back with uh, Drew Pearson Marketing. And we were all excited to bring the American know-how into markets like Europe. And, uh, boy, every time we brought over our own people into those markets, we just couldn't get any traction. And what it really came down to is you had to understand the culture of that particular market to have the success. And you can't read about culture in a book. You have to, uh, you have to kind of live it, right? You have to be, grow up in it. Did you have any experiences like that in growing up and in, in opening up international markets? Absolutely. And I've come to that same conclusion that you have to have that local um, uh, cultural intelligence and you, you don't read it in a book and you don't learn it 
secondhand unless you've lived it. And so having somebody local in the market that is is very, very familiar, has lived it, is a huge advantage for sure. You know, I do brisk bits, and uh, this is a brisk bit. If you enter an international market without a full understanding of its culture and without establishing a team who lives that culture, you will fail. Take that brisk pick to the bank. And uh, I think we see that for sure, Steve. So staying with the, the same ideas, I mean, here you are. Um, you know, we're sitting in, in this situation. Uh, you're now in three business segments. I mean, my goodness, you went direct selling. Uh, you've got a coffee business. Uh, Longevity also has now a hemp enterprises. You know, those are different businesses. What, um, what, how did one lead to the other? Well, ultimately, it, it all came down to all have connectivity around the consumer. They're, they're all three consumer-based businesses with consumer products that um, uh, the consumer has an interest in. So it's not B2B, so to speak. It, it's really uh, consumer-based uh, in terms of the products that are created. And there's a lot of crossover with agriculture and production and each business segment either designs or produces or designs and produces products. And so with the hemp enterprise, with Cresos and CLR, both have field to, to finish uh, technologies and capabilities to produce a consumer facing product line, really a product good. And uh, so when it comes to longevity on the direct selling side, we develop products and while we're not uh, field to finish except through Cresos and CLR. It definitely is an understood um, technology, and my father has a background in agri agriculture. I've grown up around all of, of that sort of stuff, and so our products are very consumer-focused and consumer-facing, but they start with an agricultural base. Uh, we, we have natural products. We have certified organic products and things like that, and so it all ties in from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, leveraging core competencies comes to mind, right? I mean, uh, you're not coming out of left field with it. I know we've ventured into a few businesses through acquisitions where they got a little bit outside of our core competency. And uh, when that happens, you know, maybe it's a little bit easier instead of falling in love with the deal, bail, right? <laughs> that one, rather than buy. So, Steve, can you hang with me for uh, another segment? Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to wrap up here on, uh, on this segment, uh, risk buyer bail. You know, I think we offered some great insights. I certainly appreciate what Steve brought to the table, a lot that we can all learn from. And we're going to be back after a word from our sponsors that are uh, helping provide this great content to all of you. The next segment we'll be back with is Brisks, Bulls, and Bears. And we're going to dig into the public markets, and this is going to be interesting. Be back in a moment.